Good morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to be with everyone once again, sing praises, and to, uh, to worship the living God. Uh, and I know if you were here th- last week that that scripture seems familiar because, yes, we did uh, cover the uh, surrounding text as well. But this week we're actually going to dive in and look at the example of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. Uh, because this month we are focusing the entire month as a uh, focus on prayer, uh, what it means to us today, what it means to the believer, uh, what it means in our relationship with the living God. Um, and so this morning we are looking intently at the prayer that the Son of God taught His people. Um, But before we get into the Scripture itself, uh, I've mentioned before that I grew up here in the Charleston area. I uh, actually out in Ladson, and then after college moved out to the North Charleston area. I actually uh, had a duplex apartment just a few blocks from here after college. So this area... Uh, it's my home. It's how I grew up. And I grew up as the only child of a single mom who worked at North Charleston High School. Uh, but growing up the way that we did, we didn't have a whole lot of, uh, or she didn't have a whole lot of income, so we didn't, we didn't travel much. We didn't, uh, we didn't even really go outside of the state, let, let alone outside of the country. Uh, even to this day, I have never been out of the United States, uh, and I used to joke that that was more of a uh, national security issue than anything. They just didn't want me in the, uh, being exposed to other cultures, but, but most of my education growing up of other countries and other cultures came uh, through the world of television. And in fact, uh, this is how I experienced much of what I refer to as America's hat, Canada. Um, most of my education and my knowledge of Canada itself either came from Dudley Do-Right, you know, the, the whole Rocky and Bullwinkle and, and all of that. Uh, he was a Canadian Mountie. I, I learned about Canada from him. And Strange Brew, which was a 1980s movie with, with Rick Moranis and, and Dave Thomas. And my education of Canada came mostly from those two uh, experiences. And needless to say, there were a lot of misconceptions about what I believed about Canada. I, I just assumed that there were like mooses roaming freely through people's yards and that you could literally just get maple syrup out of just tapping a tree. I, I, I was young. I, I, it's okay. I'm, I don't truly believe that now, but a lot of my misconceptions about Canada changed when I met Amy in college. Uh, because even though she was born here in the States, she grew up most of her life at that point in Manitoba. And so when I realized that she was from Canada, I just started sharing all these things that I knew about Canada, uh, much to uh, her chagrin. Uh, there was a lot of rolling eyes, uh, a lot of exasperated sighs, and, uh, and sometimes even a few tears. Um, but my viewpoint of Canada and what I understood drastically changed when I heard about her experiences in Canada. 
I'm still not completely sold on it. The fact that they have six months of snow a year, not real keen on that. But to hear her experiences makes it sound much more beautiful and majestic than I had previously thought. And that's because your viewpoint can completely change when you hear firsthand from someone that has experienced it. As someone who had never experienced Canada, my understanding and my viewpoint of it completely changed when I heard about her love for it. Now for a moment I want you to imagine that you are an Old Testament believer and you've heard about God and His kingdom only through the priests and the prophets, only through these things, these little slivers that have been revealed about who God is and His kingdom. And then fast forward approximately to the year 30 A.D. when this guy named Jesus starts his earthly ministry. And he's teaching about God and the kingdom. And he says things like, the kingdom of God is like. And he starts unpacking all these things that people had only heard little bits and pieces of before. And he starts expounding upon it. And this idea of who God is and his relationship to his, his people, and what his kingdom is like, really starts to unfold and expand because all of a sudden people are hearing from someone who has experienced it firsthand. In fact, he even says that when you pray, you pray like this because God the Son is coming and teaching his people how to pray to God the Father. That God came to earth, not specifically to, but part of His teaching was to teach God's people how to communicate to God. And the prayer that He teaches is a prayer of dependency. It exposes how we are utterly dependent upon God and His provision. It puts us in a position of humility and vulnerability that we do not come to God out of our works and our efforts and our abilities, but we come to Him as a humble servant. And I truly believe that Jesus, by teaching this prayer, He is teaching that every person should recognize their dependency on God in prayer. He doesn't give qualifications to this prayer. He doesn't say, when, when the priests pray like this, Or when your elders pray that they should pray like this. He doesn't say that when you've been cleansed of your sin, good people pray like this. He doesn't say that. He says when you pray, pray like this. Because Christ is teaching that all people are in this position of dependency upon God. And then He shows us why. And I've broken it down into three particular reasons like this in verses 9 through 10 by seeing God's position number 2 in verses 11 and 12 by seeing God's provision and lastly in verse 13 by seeing God's protection before we go any further let us pray heavenly father we thank you for this time that we can come together that we can receive Your Word, that we can sit at the foot of Your throne in awe of who You are 
And as we sit here this morning and, and look at Your Word and what it has to, to say to Your people and to us today in 2019, God, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place. That You would break down the walls that we have built up. That You would destroy the idols that we put in Your place. God, show us our need of You. Speak through a broken man like myself to speak Your Gospel truth. And I pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now, I didn't grow up in the church. I started going to church actually in in middle school and and actually uh, consistently in high school uh, that was when I came to know the Lord was in high school through a, a local youth ministry. But once I started becoming engaged in church, that was the first time I'd ever been challenged on prayer itself. And I don't know if you've ever heard about this uh, approach to prayer called the ACTS prayer, A-C-T-S prayer. But it stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It kind of gives an order and an outline of the way that you present your prayer to God. And at that point, when when I learned that, I realized that in my own prayers, I often jump straight to supplication. When I would pray, I would automatically pray, you know, dear God, give me this. I would completely skip over adoring who God is and confessing my sin and thanking Him for what He's given me. And I would just jump straight into asking God to supply. And I often, even today, I struggle with slowing down to focus on the importance of who God is. And that's what Jesus does. He opens up his prayer by teaching us to focus and seeing God's position. Specifically, God's position and who he is and in relation to his people. He starts off in verse 9 saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. Because the Jewish people we're accustomed to seeing God as, as God, to see Him as Lord and King and Shepherd. They understood the concept of this infinite God being this mighty ruler who ruled over His people. But to present God and praying to Him as Father was revolutionary. It completely changes the dynamic of that relationship. As it goes just strictly from a ha- of being subservient to a ruler and a king to all of a sudden there is an intimate relationship between a child and a father. Then now we are seeing God is not just a shepherd and a king and a ruler, but God's people are able to see Him with compassion and trust. But not just purely relationship, but it's a holy relationship because He's our Father in heaven. He's both, God is both relational and holy. And that's an important distinction because you cannot have one without the other. If you have the relationship without the holiness, then He's just this obscure Father figure that that relationship is definitely going to be affected by your own relationship with your earthly Father. 
but it becomes too familial, too, uh, too close without respecting His holiness. But if you have the holiness without the, the relationship, then God is just this ruler, just ruling from somewhere, completely detached from His people. And so there's this important distinction that, that He is a Father of inti- intimate compassion for His children, but He's in heaven in a position of holiness. Paul in Galatians 3 and Romans 8 reminds believers that faith in Christ, and it's through that faith in Christ that God adopts His people as sons and daughters. That the relationship between God and His people through faith in Christ is not just that of a a ruler and a servant, but that God brings His people into an intimate relationship and calls His people His children. And then Jesus goes on to say, hallowed be your name. And I know we don't often use that word much in our our everyday vernacular anymore. We don't refer to hallowed grounds or or hallowed words that often. But it's the sense that this the the name of God itself is holy and sanctified. That it means that it is set apart. That the name of God is unlike any other name because it is hallowed. It is holy. Throughout Leviticus, God says to His people to consecrate yourselves and be holy for I am holy. That the very identity and nature and name of God Himself is full of holiness. That it is set apart from everything else. And God tells His people to be different, be set apart, because you are My people. As I am holy and set apart, you also should be. And then Jesus says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is where a lot of tension starts to develop. Because when you pray this, there's this natural tension between a kingdom mentality and our sense of individualism, our individuality. Uh, we, as, not just as a culture, but it, it's in our human nature, we love rebellion. It comes naturally to us. For those of you with children, you've already seen this. Even though they, they are they're children and they're precious to you, you see the rebellion that's in your heart or in their hearts. Or for those of you that look honestly in your nostalgic years when you were growing up, you recognize the rebellion in your own heart toward your parents. As a culture, we love our individuality and to be different from everyone else. We love to rebel and say, Well, I'm not like everyone else. I'm different. We love our individuality. In fact, as a nation, we love rebellion so much we have an entire day to celebrate it on the 4th of July where we have National Rebellion Celebration Day. Now don't get me wrong, what, what happened that day was good and important, 
but it's a day where we are actually celebrating our nature to rebel. Because it's part of us. It's me. It's in, it's in you that we rebel against authority. And yet Jesus teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come. That there's this need for a kingdom mentality. That God, this Holy Father who brings you into an intimate relationship is also a mighty King. And that when you pray for His kingdom, you're praying for His authority to reign supreme. And the interesting thing is that when you're praying for God's kingdom to reign, that God's kingdom would come, there's also this implicit prayer that the kingdoms that stand against God will fall. That when you pray, God, your kingdom come, you are praying that the, the, the nations and the, the people that stand against you will submit to your kingdom, God. And this includes our own rebellious heart, your own rebellious nature. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, and this is part of when he's explaining having the mindset of Christ, he closes that passage by saying, therefore God has, exalt, has highly exalted Him, being Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that when you pray that God's kingdom come, that you are praying that the nations and the powers that fight against God's kingdom will one day bend their knee and submit to the King, that they would bow and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you pray for God's will to be done, you are praying for your own obedience to His authority. Praying for His kingdom to come is to pray for His authority. To pray for His will to be done is to pray for your obedience. And the question is, but isn't God's will always done? That's a very nice churchy theological question to ask. Well, when you pray for God's will to be done, I mean, He's God. He controls everything. His will's always done. And here's where I get to teach you two very churchy words. If you can use them in a sentence this week, you get bonus church points. But there's a difference between God's sovereign will and His preceptive will. God's sovereign will is the aspect of, that God's rule controls all things. That everything submits to the will of God. But God's preceptive will is what He commands His people to do. And this is where your obedience comes in. Because God rules over all of creation, but He commands you to obey His will and His authority. And even Jesus, God in the flesh, prayed for God's will to be done. In Luke 22, right before he's, uh, he's uh, arrested and taken to be tortured and crucified, Jesus is praying and He says, take this cup from Me, but if not, 
not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, is praying that God the Father's will would be done and that He would have the strength to obey the will of God the Father. And so when you pray these things in verses 9 and 10, when you pray that uh, to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're praying that you would submit yourself to a holy God who calls you and makes you his own child. You're praying to submit yourself to his holiness and that you would even reflect his holiness that you would be holy as He is holy. You're praying to submit yourself to God's kingdom and His authority and to have the strength to to be obedient to His will. And these are the things that you are praying in this prayer that Jesus teaches. And so you actually have to stop for a moment because we've heard this prayer so many times. It's been recited and we teach it to our children. And we, even when we pray the Lord's Prayer in church, we often just recite it just out of rote memory without even thinking about what it means. But when you pray these things, you are praying to submit yourself to a holy Father and mighty King. And then after focusing your heart and your mind on God and His position. Christ teaches His people to pray and to see God's provision. And this next petition, this next request in the prayer, often in our daily culture, it feels kind of empty and almost even worthless to pray, give us our daily bread. Because we live in an excessive culture. We live in a world where we have things like Costco and Sam's Club that we don't even think about daily bread because you can buy mayonnaise by the gallon. You can buy enough toilet paper to last you the entire year because we are trained to to stock up and buy in bulk and, and get all of these things and just take care of all of your needs so you don't have to worry about running out. We live in a world where there's buffets every few blocks apart from one another. I actually had to institute a a rule in our own family that we are not allowed to go to buffets anymore because I cannot stop myself. In Lexington, South Carolina, there's a place called Hudson Smokehouse, which is an all-you-can-eat barbecue buffet. And I ate to the point, and Amy hates this line, but I gave myself the meat sweats, where you eat so much that you're just sweating. But it was, oh, you could eat barbecue. And I, but this is the culture that we live in, that you consume until it literally hurts. And we read this line, and part of you, if you're honest with yourself, you ask yourself in the back of your mind, Who needs daily bread when I've got everything that I already need? We have a self-dependent nature that we want to take care of ourselves. We want to provide for ourselves that there's even a sense of shame of asking for help. 
But the question is, who controls and provides the things that we think we are providing for ourselves? Who is the one that makes those vegetables grow? Who is the one that causes that, that delicious animal to become barbecue one day? That's not under your control. That's not under your authority. That is under the control of the God who rules over all things. And so when we pray to give us our daily bread, we're praying for Him to provide for all of our needs. We are, even if we live in a world where your daily needs are met and we are able to buy in bulk and stock up on things, it's the acknowledgement that He is the one that provides those things for us in the first place. That He is the one who controls your own work and provides your paycheck that you work for. When you pray, give us our daily bread, you're acknowledging that all things are His to give and your dependency on Him to provide. But then there's the question of, well, what about when, when I do lack those things? Because I don't know about you, but my heart wants to naturally go to fear or anxiety or depression. An anxiety that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. Or a depression that I'm not enough to take care of my wife and my kids when those things are lacking. And later on, shortly after Jesus teaches this prayer, He gives an explanation of how God provides and He feeds the birds and clothes the lilies. And if He does these things for birds and for flowers, how much more is He going to take care of His own people who are made in His image? In fact, in Matthew 6.33, He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you that when you are pursuing God and his kingdom and his righteousness that he provides for your needs you might not get all of your wants but he will take care of your needs and we confuse those two things we think that having a, a larger home or a newer car or getting into that better school or having perfect obedient children that those are things that we need but those are the wants that we have. But when we submit ourselves in a position of humility and dependency on His provision, that He provides the things that we truly need. And then in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is perhaps the most beautiful aspect of God's provision for His people. Because we often view our sin as a mistake. Oh, I messed up. I won't do it again. But Scripture views our sin in legal terms. That when you commit a sin, that when you err against the holy will of God, Scripture describes your sin as a debt and the problem with a debt is the fact that there is a payment owed for that debt. In Romans 3.23, it, 
Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then later in 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. That the payment for the debt that you owe is death and blood. That's why God provided a sacrificial system for His people. Because God knew that His people could not be good enough to pay off their debt. And so He provides a way for them to make atonement for their sins. And then, He sends His Son to live a perfect and obedient life in humility and servitude and to take the place as the perfect sacrifice for God's people. That's why we don't sacrifice anymore because the sacrifice has been made in full with the blood of Jesus. Because Romans 6.23 goes on and it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the gift of God is that Jesus paid the debt that you owed. Not because you earned it, not because you were good enough or that you were going to be clever enough or that one day you might do something that God would say, wow, that really pays back that that whole death and atonement thing. But no, simply because of His love, He sent Jesus to pay your debt. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. That the debt that you owed for your sin was nailed to the cross and paid with the blood of Jesus. And that when He rose again, you weren't just wiped clean, but you were given His victory and His life. And I'm going to give you another very churchy word. And it's one of the most beautiful words that you can learn, but it's the word imputation. Because in Jesus' death, your sin was imputed to Him. That He took your status as sinful and took your debt. But in His resurrection, His victory was imputed to you. That His victory over sin and death and His status as holy and righteous was given to you as His people. And so when you pray this, When you pray, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's a reminder not just of a provision of needs, but it's the forgiveness of your sin debt. And a reminder that when you remember the debt that you have been forgiven of, that you're to go out and to share that forgiveness with others. That because of the great mercy that was given to you in this relationship, you are called to go out and extend that mercy to others in these relationships. And then in the final petition, Christ teaches His people to see God's 
protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It evokes this imagery of God leading His people. Like when He led Israel through the wilderness. With leading them through the wilderness uh, with, with, with fire and smoke and, and leading them and protecting them. Or, or in Psalm 23, when God is described, and not just God, but the very name of God, Yahweh. It says, Yahweh is my shepherd. As a shepherd leads his flock, the Lord leads his people. And then later, in his ministry in John chapter 6, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. That he's not just a shepherd, but that he is the good shepherd. That he defends his flock and protects his people. And so when you pray, God, lead us not into into temptation, you're praying that God would continue to lead His people as He has done for generations. As He has led them and protected for them and provided for them, that He would continue to do that for you today. But deliver us, not or lead us not into temptation. Because as we, for those of you that were here for our, our series in James, we saw that God does not tempt people. It's not in His nature to tempt people. But He will often bring people to and through trials. Look at the lives of Abraham or Job. That God did not tempt them, but He was with them through their trials to perfect them. Or to cleanse them, to, to, to mold them and refine them. And I've heard it said that God will not tempt you to sin, but He may put your obedience to the test. That He will not tempt you, but He may lead you to a trial. But He is with you as He has always led His people and provided for them. And then Jesus teaches, deliver us from evil. And that's such a vague term. But Scripture gives three examples of evil. That there, there's evil in the world itself. That in 1 John 2.16, John writes that the desires of the world are not from God. That they are contrary to Him and His nature and His holiness. That the desires of the world are evil and bring destruction. And if you're honest with yourself, that there is evil within you. As Scripture teaches in Galatians 5.17, that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And if you're honest with your own heart, you recognize how many times you even fight against the holiness of God Himself. That you fight against His will because you want your will to be done. And we pray that God would deliver us from the evil one, from Satan, from the enemy. In 1 Peter 5.8, that Peter describes, that he says that uh, our adversary, the devil, prowls like a lion seeking someone to devour. And so when we pray, God, deliver us from evil, it's not just this generic 
you know, keep us safe from the bad guys. But it's praying, keep us away and deliver us from the evil of the things that fight against You. Keep us away and deliver us from the desires of the world that fight Your holiness. Deliver us from the evil desires of our own heart that want to rebel against You. And deliver us from the evil one. But oftentimes we pray to be led and delivered and then run right back into sin. Like being rescued from a burning building and then running right back in because it's comfortable and that's what you know. And so when you pray to be led and delivered, you're praying not just that God would lead, but that you would have the strength to follow. You're admitting that you cannot deliver yourself, that you cannot protect yourself from evil, and that you are in a a state of dependency for Him to lead and deliver you. And you're admitting your dependency of of your need for a Holy Father who erased your debt to be the one to lead you. And so this morning, I want, to, I want you to just take a moment to ask yourself, to examine your heart and your mind and where you are in this relationship between you and God. As, we, as we've examined the Lord's Prayer, ask yourself, will you continue to live in your own strength, looking to yourself to be strong enough, are good enough, are clever enough to provide, while sitting in the excesses of your own stuff, perhaps wrestling with your own anxiety or depression, wishing that you could de- deliver yourself, or Will you submit yourself and your will and confess your need and your dependency on the One who calls you His child and pray for His kingdom to come and your obedience to His will? Will you pray to look to Him for all of your needs, trusting in His forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Christ? And trusting and praying that He will both lead and deliver you. This day, which will you choose? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You. We thank You because You are a... You not, are, you're not just a... You are the Holy God. Infinite Creator who has brought us into relationship with You. And so God, as we hear Your Word, as we think about our relationship to You, God, we pray and confess that far too often that we have rebelled against You and Your Kingdom, and we pray that we would submit our hearts and our minds to Your holiness and to Your will and to Your Kingdom. Give us the strength to obey. We want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. 
Remind us of our need for You to provide the things that we so often take for granted. And remind us of the forgiveness that You have given to us so we may give it to others. And Father, lead us as Your people and deliver us from evil. And now, collectively, as God's people, we pray in the way that You have taught us to pray by saying, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.